Well, one of my favorite stories to tell around Christmas time, and I know Christmas has passed, but they wouldn't. One of my favorite stories to tell around Christmas time was when I was working as a hospital chaplain. And when you work at a Catholic hospital, Christmas is a fairly big deal. And there are decorations and special services and multiple nativity scenes. And primarily at the hospital, there was this big, beautiful ironworks nativity scene that filled the atrium of the hospital. And one of the hospital volunteers came running into the pastoral care office one day, and she was in a panic. She said, oh, my Lord, Jesus is missing. (laughs) And at first, I thought someone had stolen a crucifix off one of the walls in one of the rooms. It happened all the time. Because, you know, someone would be in the hospital, and they'd be packing their bags, getting ready to leave, and they'd be like, hmm. God, just take Jesus with me. And that was fine. We had a whole box of Jesuses. And we could just replace those anytime one got stolen. And our rationale was that if you need Jesus so bad that you're going to steal him off the wall, by all means, take as many Jesuses as you need. Right? That's what I thought she was talking about. But no, the missing Jesus was the baby Jesus from the big, beautiful nativity scene. Everybody else was there. Mary and Joseph and wise men and shepherds and sheep and donkeys and angels and the Apostle Paul and the Twelve Disciples. No, not all of them, but everybody was there except for Jesus. The manger was empty, and Elaine concluded that someone had stolen him from his crib while he was sleeping. And I joined her in her panic. Who could have done such a thing? Who would steal the baby Jesus? Why would they do this? You know what? I bet it's that kid down in radiology who is always up to something. We should check with him. Now, I I mean, I understand. I, I borrowed a mannequin from a department store one time. I returned it. But that's a story for another time. Our boss arrives. We're in a panic. We're just about to order all the surveillance tapes of the lobby, trying to figure out who stole Jesus. And she laughs and she says, you Protestants, nobody stole Jesus. And she takes us to this little storage area and she opens it up, pulls out this drawer and wrapped in shrink wrapping bubbles, there's the baby Jesus. And she says, Jesus is not supposed to show up till Christmas Eve and Christmas. Only Catholics, right? Right. Well, Elaine voiced the frustration of the ages. Jesus is missing. He is born in Bethlehem. As an infant in arms, he is carried away to Egypt for his own safety, to escape a jealous, jealous, insane king. And while he is still a child, he returns to the home of his parents, to Nazareth, a hard-scrabble village in the Galilean highlands. And then Jesus goes missing. He disappears. And he won't reappear on history's stage until he is 30, decades later. Some imagine that he traveled to India and became a Buddhist. Others say that he went into deepest Africa. While not in this exact time frame, Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon has him coming to America, of which none of these can be remotely true. There is no historical or literary evidence whatsoever for any of this. 
My favorite theory is from singer-songwriter and folk legend John Prine. Introducing the song, Jesus, the Missing Years, quote, I got the idea for this song at a party a couple years back. Somebody started telling me that there were all these missing years in the life of Jesus. He was missing from like 12 until like 30. And I asked, nobody knew where he was? Nobody. Nobody knew. So that stuck in the back of my mind. One of the most influential and controversial figures in the history of mankind. And nobody knows where he is for 18 years. I snuck away on a fishing trip once with a waitress for a couple of days, and by the time we got back to Nashville, everybody knew where we were. (laughs) And then John describes Jesus traveling all over Europe and enjoying himself and falling in love and getting married and inventing Santa Claus and recording music with the Rolling Stones and discovering the Beatles. And he ends with Jesus going back home to do what he came to do, and these are his words, Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? I'm a human corkscrew and all my wine is blood. They're going to kill me, Mama. They don't like me very much. So Jesus went to heaven and he went there awful quick. All them people killed him and he wasn't even sick. So come gather around my contemporary peers and I'll tell you all the story of Jesus, the missing years. I'll let you chase that song down on your own. It's easy for our imaginations to run wild, filling in the blanks of Jesus' life, but we don't have to run very far. This event we have read about today in Luke chapter 2 tells us what we need to know. Jesus, at the age of 12, goes to Jerusalem with his parents, with his extended family. They would have gone every year for Passover as it was required for all healthy, well-bodied Jewish men who lived in the country. They traveled to the temple in Jerusalem to carry out their annual religious responsibilities. This was the week the Jewish nation remembered and celebrated their independence. The breaking of the chains of Egyptian slavery. It was the most important festival of the year. It was not to be missed. And Jerusalem would have been slammed with people. Absolutely overflowing. And it seems like Jesus is a part of a large caravan from Nazareth. About a three-day travel span. And it makes sense. Maybe it's him and his extended family. Maybe it's Mary, Joseph, and the people they go to synagogue with, a few of their neighbors. Maybe it's a collection of carpenters and plumbers and painters, you know, that are all part of the union and they're going together down to Jerusalem. It's like a rolling family reunion. Grandparents, parents, neighbors, friends, uncles, aunts, and all the kids just running around in the midst of all of that. As the group does their religious work and turns for home, it would have been a three-day journey back home. Leon Morris says that the women and the smaller children would have traveled ahead because they traveled at a slower pace. And when the rituals at the temple were complete, the men and the older boys would come along afterwards, catching up as evening fell. Jesus would be today what we would call a tween, not a teenager, not an older boy, and not a child. So it's really easy to see how he got left behind. I imagine as the sun was beginning to set on that first night on the road, Mary is tired because she's been hurting the other children all day long in the dust and in the heat. 
trying to keep them from getting run over by the camels or whatever else is on the road. She sets up camp with the other women. She's cooking dinner and wiping noses and changing diapers. And all along, she thinks Jesus is with Joseph back at the temple. Joseph finally comes rolling into camp at sunset, having finished in Jerusalem. And he thinks Jesus has been with Mary this entire time. Only when the two halves of the family get back together do they realize that indeed, Mr. John Prine, Jesus is missing. Mary says to Joseph, well, how did Jesus do? Was he able to keep up? And Joseph, who's already trying to hide the wine and cigar smoke off his breath because he's been with the, he's been with the boys all day. <clears throat> what? <clears throat> what do you mean, was Jesus able to keep up? Was Jesus, did he have a good time? Jesus? Oh, Jesus. I thought he was with you. Oh, what? He was with you. He's not with me. I would not want it to have slept in that tent that night. So after they beg the Department of Children and Family Services not to arrest them, they get up the next morning and they head back to Jerusalem to find the boy. And when they find him, the words that come from Mary's mouth are exactly what should and would be said by any of us. And it is just the most Jewish mother you've ever heard, thing you've ever heard in your life. Why did you do this to me? How could you do this to us after the way that we have raised? Can't you hear it? I mean, read the text. She is ticked off. How could you treat us this way? You're so inconsiderate. Don't you know that we've been going crazy looking for you? You know, you can doubt the Bible all you want. Right here's a story that is so authentic it has to be true. I have this marvelous little app on my telephone. I can pick it up right now and open that app and I can tell you exactly where my son Braden is. Well, I can tell you where his phone is. And I guarantee you, a 15-year-old boy with an iPhone, he's with that phone. This is a lifeline to the world. I don't check it all the time, but I do, I do occasionally check it against whatever story he's telling me. I haven't always had that luxury. I, I lost my oldest son, Blaze, twice. The first time was my fault. I had the boys by myself at the time. I was a single dad, and they were very little, and they were in the buckets what I always called those car seats. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The buckets. And they're in the buckets. And I'm late for church. And I'm trying to get to church. And out the door I go. And I get the door open to the SUV. And I swing Bryce in and set him down. And I swing Blaze up and I put him on the roof. <laughs> I get Bryce buckled in. Jump in the front seat with my sermon notes falling out of my Bible. And Start to back up. Only one kid back there. Where's the other one? He was okay. <clears throat> the other time I lost him was at Zoo Atlanta. And it is a zoo in Atlanta. And we were watching the gorillas through this big, thick glass. And he was there. I was there. We were watching. I turned to ask him a question. He's just gone. Gone. And he was missing for 10 minutes. And it felt like an eternity. It was just an eternity. Somebody's got him. 
Somebody's stolen him. He's climbed a wall and he's in a cage. I didn't know what was going on. And when I finally found him, he'd just been wandering around. I did what every one of you have done in your life that is a parent. Oh, where have you been? I'm going to kill you if you ever do that again. All of that is going on at the temple. Don't you see that? Where have you? They're so relieved. He's okay. He's safe. But at the same time, they're so angry and upset. They're going to get more upset. There's a reason Luke includes this story the way that he does. What happens still to this day for a Jewish boy who is 12 moving toward his 13th birthday? A bar mitzvah. He doesn't so much have a bar mitzvah as much as he becomes a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah, son of the commandments. It's the transitional right from childhood to adulthood. This is why Jesus is at the temple. And for a firstborn son who's bright and curious and knowledgeable, it's easy to see that Mary and Joseph are saying, let's don't just take him to the synagogue for the for the bar mitzvah, let's take, when we go to the temple this year, let's do it there. So it's a big deal. And Jesus is transitioning from being a little boy to becoming, soon enough, a man. And that's why they are there. Now let me show you a piece of art that depicts this event. This is by the late Grant Romney Clawson. It is beautiful and it is all wrong. <laughs> Jesus is the center of attention. You see him there? And Mary and Joseph are in the background when they stumble upon him in the temple. He is the golden boy, quite literally, because he has blonde hair and blue eyes, looking very Scandinavian instead of Jewish. He's baffling the the wise men with his learned words, and this is not at all how Luke portrays the event. In Luke 2.46, they finally discover Jesus in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening and asking questions. Jesus is not yet the teacher. He is the student. He is the seeker. He is the learner. He is participating in the debate. He's obviously very gifted, very curious, obviously experiencing some sort of self-discovery, self-awareness. You could call it an enlightenment. This is the moment that Jesus seems to conclude, now I know who I am and what I'm going to do with my life. This is why Luke includes the story. It is an important piece in the development of Jesus as a person and His coming ministry. And there's a lot of debate, and I won't bore you with it today, scholarly debate about how self-aware was Jesus and when did He become self-aware that He was the Son of God. Who knows? But He is a man. He was a boy. And He, just like us, He had to grow into it. He had to grow into the person that He would become. I don't think it's any accident that Luke gives us this clue. Now, maybe I can explain it like this. There's a great children's book now on the verge of being read to the third generation of children in this country, and it is fantastic. I recommend it highly. Are You My Mother? I read it to my children one day, if they still print books in the future. My children will read it to their children. It is the story about a mother bird who briefly leaves the nest, leaves her egg behind to go find the hatchling something to eat that he will have when he is born. He hatches out while she is gone. 
And he wonders, who am I? Where am I? What is this place? And he begins to wander around the world trying to figure it out. And he meets a cat and a chicken and a dog and a cow and an old car and a boat and a plane. And finally, this huge bulldozer named Snort. And Snort is the wisest of the bunch. He seems to realize what has happened. And he takes the little bird up into his scoop. And he lifts him way high back in the air and drops him back in the nest just as his mom returns And everywhere he goes, he asks that question, are you my mother? Is this home? Where do I belong? Jesus at 12 in the temple has found his nest. He knows where he belongs. He knows just the first glimpse of where life will lead him. Does he know it all? I don't think so. Can he see everything that's about to take place? Who cares? He has enough. He realizes, I have to be here in this place. I have to learn what's going on. This will set the trajectory for my life. He is hatching in the nest. I won't pull the the verses back up, but I hope you'll look at it in the text. He does something really interesting. Mary shows up and she says this, Your father and I have been frantic. Now look at that. Have you found it on your text there? If you have, say amen. What case is father? Small. A sentence later, Jesus says, I must be in my father's house. What's the case? Capital. It's a spiritual awakening. Jesus was beginning to grow up and grow past what was expected of him, and they are stunned. What is he talking about? What, does, what, what does, he, does he mean? We don't understand. Mary just has to take it all and shove it down into that dark hole that all mothers have in their hearts about, I have no idea what I'm doing. Mark down these words. They're true. When you start growing and changing, when you start following the Spirit in a direction that others have not yet experienced, they are not going to know what to do with you. When you start growing up, start becoming your own person on your own path, dancing to your own tune inside your own head, it will hurt some people around you because they won't understand. They will be unsettled. And they will take it personal. Weren't we enough for you? Didn't we raise you right? course you did but I'm growing up and I'm growing on quick example I spoke at a gathering this weekend as I said in Nashville and um, it was a recovery conference everybody was there you know recovering addicts recovering drunks recovering sex addicts recovering overeaters you just had to be careful which group you went with afterwards because you didn't want to make no no you I mean, if you wanted a beer with somebody, don't go with the recovering alcoholics. I mean, you're there to help, not to hurt. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. It really was. And I I met a young woman, and she was experiencing this very thing. Uh, She's 40 years old and a mother of two, not a 12-year-old child. And she's got some real growth going on, self-development. Losing her insecurities, breaking the shackles of, of caution and fear. And she has this healthy perspective on life. And, and the first glimpse, maybe, at 40 of what she's going to do with her, with her life. 
And so she's begun to cast off some of that old stuff. It's sort of like I shared in the first service. Did, you, did, did your child ever have a Halloween costume that they held on to it for, for too long? They put it on on Halloween and it fits so perfect and it's so lovely. But, you know, they're wearing it at Thanksgiving because they're in love with that image. They're wearing it at Christmas. They're wearing it when springtime comes. And by that time, the sleeves are like here and the legs are here. And they're just busting out of it in all these places. And you finally have to say, that needs to go. Well, growth is like that. So this young woman is just growing out of that costume she's had. And uh, as hard as she works to grow, the people around her are working just as hard to keep her where she is. You can't do that. You shouldn't say that. You can't go live there. Don't be so radical. (laughs) It's a clear message. Stay with the herd. Stay with me. But she can't. She, like all of us, has to make her own path by walking that path. Jesus wasn't missing. The text says he returned to Nazareth. And there he grew. In wisdom. In stature. And in favor with God and all the people. He was doing what we all must do. Whether we're 4 or 40 or 80. Growing up. And becoming the fearfully and wonderfully made person that God intended him to be. In the words of James Hollis, one of the many messages of life is that we only get one shot at this. So show up as your own flawed, clunky, awkward self. But for God's sake, be yourself. Step outside the map and the plan that has been prepared for you by others and be who you are called to be. That is our summons and that is God's gift to us. And I would add that that is the very example that Jesus gives. May we pray together.